cool thing. And, you know, sometimes we think that there's nothing we can do, but there's a lot more we can do if we just step into it, if we just look for some of the answers and how can we help. And some of that is just by having a conversation as well, which is what we love to do here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Speaking of conversations, if you're not familiar with the Memory Cafes, you are going to want to go to memorycafe.com. There you will find a list um, of of uh, memory cafes throughout the U.S. I believe we're over a, uh, 800 now, Dave has put together. And he is also working on putting a list together for other countries. There's no fee uh, to utilize that and access and find out what's in your backyard. Or if you want to get listed there, there's also no fee. So go to Alzheimer's or go to memorycafe.com for more information on the memory cafes. Um, let's see. Then I always like to give a shout out <clears throat> to some of my upcoming events. I'm going to be at Gable Pines at Badness Heights in Minnesota, um, Thursday, January 30th from 7:30 to 9:30, and we're going to be talking about why families act the way they do, dementia realities, perceptions, and stigmas, and it's going to be an eye opener for staff um, as well as families because we all interact and it's important for us to know why makes it much much easier for us to work together and then I will also be doing a webinar for the greenhouse project January 30th more information will be coming on that and then February 19th we'll be doing a webinar with educate for their virtual road trip which I'm um, excited to be part of and last, if you are a business and want to expand your brand footprint, please reach out to me. We would love to talk with you and see how we can uh, leverage our content to um, to spread the word of your service product or tool. So I am so excited about the conversation we're going to have today. Um, we are going to be talking with Dr. William uh, Hazeltine, and he is a dynamic player in dementia care and advocacy. He is also a renowned scientist whose book, Voices in Dementia Care, Reimagining uh, the Culture of Care, just came out. And I know this is going to be a great conversation because this is something I, too, am passionate about. And I've been pushing for kind of shifting that dementia uh, care culture from crisis to comfort around the world for for what I thought was years, but nothing in comparison to this man. So in the the book, um, healthcare professionals describe the challenges of delivering high quality dementia care with limited resources, and I hear people talking about that constantly. And the book provides critical analysis of best practices that can be adapted and applied, not just for institutional and home care providers, but also for families, which I think is really important, too. And so, you know, by now, most of us have have noticed an increase in media awareness uh, from funding to medical research in the area of Alzheimer's and dementia. But Dr. Hazeltine stresses that there's also a lack of firsthand information about the experience of living with these disorders and, and caring for people with dementia. And his book really raises the voices of care professionals, um, caregivers, care partners, carers, depending on where you are in the world and how you turn them, and people who actually have a diagnosis um, to describe 
you know, what are some of the best practices? So welcome, Dr. Hazeltine. I'm, I'm just so excited to have you with us today. Thank you. Well, I, I always start out asking um, every guest the same question, and that is, have you been personally touched by dementia in your own um, family circle or, or friends? Uh, I would say certainly friends. Um, okay. No uh, parents, but uh, there's been, I've uh, lived with uh, different kinds of mental disorders, not myself, but uh, my parents and my children. So I've been okay. surrounded by issues like this for most of my life. Okay. Thank you for sharing. It just kind of gives people a little bit of background in terms of right. uh, I think nobody, nobody is free from these issues. I agree. We're either I agree. a parent, we're a spouse, uh, we uh, are a friend. Uh, it's issues all around us. Yep. I, I totally agree. I think there's still so many people um, not comfortable even even acknowledging that. And to me, that's something that, that we need to change because we can't fix. If I think that's don't. changing. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. I think society is coming to realize mm-hmm. that uh, dementia, elder, you know, elder related uh, dementias, a variety of different types is uh, very common and it's yep. becoming part of the dialogue. Well, and I think they're also seeing that it's not all, it, it, it isn't their image of elderly anymore. It's people who are still actively working, and now they're hearing about children every now and then with a diagnosis as well. And so it's it's kind of tipping the the cart and making people look at things differently. And dementia so. is, a, is a is is a very broad word. And does dementia mean uh, cognitive declining cognitive function as you get older? Uh, does it mean uh, psychosis when you're younger? What does dementia really mean? I think the way we use it in this conversation is more associated with the with aging than it is mm-hmm. with uh, the more standard uh, notions of uh, of psychosis. Okay. Great. Thanks for thanks for clarifying that. Now, in your career, you've been at the forefront of medical research and application, and you have had the opportunity to educate a generation of doctors at Harvard Medical School, which I just that's just kind of like, wow. Um, and you were named by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential global business executives. And today you're, you're chair and president of Access Health International which is dedicated to ensuring quantum advances in medical technology, translating into improved health outcomes just all around the world. So I have to ask you, what got you interested specifically in, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia with this book, Voices um, in Dementia Care? Well, uh, the foundation that I created about 15 years ago looks at health systems as a whole. And I spent a lot of time looking around the world and writing uh, writing books and writing about the best hospital systems in the world. Uh, but as I did so, I began to recognize that no matter how good a system was, take Singapore or Sweden, for example, I've written two books on, on both. They weren't very good at taking care of older people. And they were not very good at all in taking care of people uh, with uh, Alzheimer's or age-related dementias. 
it mm-hmm. even in the best healthcare systems in the world, there are major gaps. And um, you know, when you're a person like me and you see a major gap, you say, okay, that's an opportunity. Let's see what we can do to address that issue. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. And I, I think that that's a real important thing. And, you know, when you were talking about the, these other two countries and, you know, they're good, but, but not as good as, is uh, is what we'd well, like. Well, they're, they're not very good at all. Well, let me take an mm-hmm. example from another country, Japan. Mm-hmm. Every night in Japan, over a thousand people go wandering from their home and are hard to find because they wow. have age-related dementia. And some of them never come back every night. Oh, wow. Some of them are lost forever. So wow. that just gives you a microcosm. And they are looking at a problem that's going to be far greater than that as the population continues to age. And they're not the only ones with those problems. Mm-hmm. Are there technical solutions? Are there social solutions? How do you deal with a problem like that? And uh, so those are those are things that kind of hit you when you say, let's think about what we can do. Yep. Yeah. That boy, that just really hit me when you said a thousand people a night, that's just unbelievable. I, I just, you know, but who, who knows how many here in the U S cause so many people won't even we talk about know. it. We don't count. Yeah. We don't yeah. count. So, you know. Yeah. So, you know, why is, is America so afraid to have this conversation? Did that come up in your book at all in terms of, you know, was that, was that something that kind of gets in the way of us being able to provide good care or is that just a, a kind of a sideline? You know, it didn't come up directly because what we did is we looked at people who are doing it well uh, mm-hmm. to help serve as examples. Uh, but it's a profound question. And one of the reasons is we as a country do social care very poorly. In fact, there's a good chunk of our country that doesn't think we should do social care at all. And if you don't think you do social care at all, and that's a big, not only a big part of the population, it's a big political constituency. And it's quite diverse. People Mm -hmm. who you think should be for social care aren't. You know, that is people at the bottom of the pyramid. Many of those people aren't for social care. And people at the very top of the pyramid who are, uh, you know, enjoying a great lifestyle don't think they should be helping or we should be helping those people. So we're a country that's really mixed. We have great people with big hearts, open wallets. Uh, Many people want to do the right things. And we're a country that has the opposite. Mm-hmm. And because those are big political tensions that not big tensions in the society, which get re- reflected in politics, that reflects in how we deal with these programs altogether and whether we even have a conversation. Now, I think that's going to change. I think it's going to change because the problem is just getting so overwhelming. The problem of how you take care of older people and how you in particular take care of people who've lost cognitive function. It affects Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Communists, you name it. Everybody's got the problem. I don't know of a single friend who isn't dealing with this issue in one way or another. Yeah. I, I know when I go out and speak, I can I can ask a crowd of like a thousand people, I'll have them all stand up and I'll ask six questions. If, you know, if it's a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whatever, and go through 
and say, you know, sit down if, if they have dementia. And at the end, there might be anywhere from three to six people standing out of a thousand. And that's, yep. that's even on the high side. That happens rarely. I agree. Um, yeah, it and, touches everybody. And people and, are just and, shocked. And so, you know, one of the reasons we don't deal with this issue is we don't deal with a lot of issues. Yeah, uh, it's not just this issue. It's the way we are as a country. Mm-hmm. By the way, it's not all bad. That same tendency, do it yourself, be independent, don't depend on government, is great in many ways. It just isn't great for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really it really does take a village um, because the, the ripple effect is so huge on it, not just the a, a physical aspect, but an emotional, a financial. I mean, there's, there's just so many things that we have to that we have to consider. Now, I want to um, ask you with your book again, "The Voices in Dementia Care: Reimagining Our Care Culture." Um, what can people expect to find in your book? Um, I think what they'll see is what they were hoping for: that some people somewhere have figured out what to do that's humane, affordable, and kind to help people with various kinds of mental dysfunction do the best they can do. And, you know, one thing that I can tell you as being in the medical world is we really are in the best part of humanity where highly educated, dedicated people do their best to take care of the people amongst us who are doing most poorly. It is a wonderful part of humanity. And I think that's one thing they can learn. Secondly, there are places they should be looking for that are like this. Uh, And then what we tried to do in this, after listening to all these people in Northern Europe and the United States, is abstract what are some generalisms. But I can tell you, at our best here in the United States, we are as good or better than anybody. There is nothing that they're doing in Europe that we're not doing here, too. We're doing the same kinds of things. They're just doing more of it than we are. But we have people here who are doing wonderful work. And that's what I hope to do with this book, to show by example what can be done when it's done best. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and what you were I can give you ta- a, I can give you a series of things that we found. Uh, we can go right through them from person-centered care to creating caring environments and then encourage autonomy, making use of new technologies. There's a lot of things, uh, integrated care, all of these things that are lessons that uh, we learned from talking to all of these people. I can tell you it was a wonderful experience because the people we interviewed have dedicated their lives to this. Deeply thoughtful, wonderful people have dedicated their entire lives to making other people's lives better. Yeah, uh, what I what I like about you know the book is, you know, when you were talking about being humane, you know, um, making it affordable and kind. I mean, you're really talking about giving people hope. And I think for so long that, you know, dementia has been sold as a doom and gloom. There's nothing we can do. This is the end of the road. And there's so much life um, that can be, that can be lived and still lived well. 
Um, I know in the book that you interviewed Brian. People Lo- kept saying, remember the person you're dealing with that has dementia mm-hmm. is a person you love. It's still that mm-hmm. person. It's another aspect of that person, but it is that person. It's not a new human being. It's not a stranger. It's that person. And as you well know, many of the characteristics, likes, the dislikes, uh, the phobias, the uh, passions that people who've lost a lot of their cognitive function, uh, they still have that personality there. They still enjoy things. They still have their desires, not different from what they had before. Yeah, that's very true. I saw that with my mom repeatedly. And um, and then there would be moments of, you know, where she would have kind of that blank stare. And, and then all of a sudden, these beautiful moments of clarity and her humor would come out. And, you know, it would just touch my heart on such a deep level because you realize how much you missed it. And it right. was it was just so much more profound. But to realize that you know, the, the soul is still there. The personalities, you know, are still, are, are still in there. But I think so often we, we have believed that because we've been told, you know, it's just going to be this progression. Um, we've, we've been told that they're not there. And so we don't look for, we don't look for those signs. We don't, we don't engage in, um, kind of a normal communication, which, you know, most of our communication right, I think is nonverbal. That, you know, there's just lots of, lots of things left that, that people should pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Like a schedule. You know, you know there are people who like to sleep in in the morning and stay up late at night. You know there are people who uh, pop up in the morning and are done by early afternoon. Well, that doesn't always change when you get older and when you may not have all your faculties. You have to respect that. You couldn't, you know, it's many of these institutions put everybody on exactly the same schedule. There are places like Vermilion Cliffs that focus on letting people have their own daily rhythms. Uh, the same thing with autonomy. Um, you know, do we keep people confined to their room or to a recreation facility? Or like some places in Holland, do we create a environment where they can walk around because they get out into into in the streets they're protected within a, a local environment but it's like a village they can go from place to place they can go to shop they can do a lot of different things you know i rem- remember very distinctly i was at a farm in uh, vietnam and we were talking they're teaching us how to make those delicious uh vegetable wraps that they they do and you know, my wife and I were learning and, and eating and having a good time. But there was an old woman sort of wandering around and finally asked, who is that? Well, that's our grandmother. Um, and she's really not all here. But she was all there. She was right there. She was interacting as she could. Who was this old woman? She was a Viet Cong commander. <laughs> okay? Oh, she, she did a lot, that lady. And the whole family just included her. She was there unconstrained, you know, wandering around, interacting as she could. I mean, that is a wonderful example of how you can treat people. And there are institutions or places uh, like this uh, Hovenberg group in Holland that do that for all the people who live there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it it is incredible, and it is so important, like you said, to allow people to have their own daily rhythm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Harry Urban, but he he lives with dementia as well. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I, I love that he said is he's like, yeah, everybody likes routines. And he's like, but, you know, sometimes you want your routine, and it's really our routine. <laughs> that mm-hmm. if you want things to go smooth, <laughs> you, you need to adjust to our routine because we can't adjust to yours anymore. You know, we don't remember, we don't, we don't, you know, we don't have that capability. Right. And so he he kind of laughs because, you know, he says so often care partners will say, well, you know, routine is good. Well, yeah, but it just, we have to look at whose routine is it and why is it? Exactly. <laughs> and, and right. So I, I think, think that's part of, you know, that's part of person-centered care, understanding who the person is, mm-hmm. remembering that it's a person that has a, their likes and dislikes. I'll tell you one of the, uh, oddest, maybe most, uh, a little bit humorous places that I uh, learned about was uh, a place that recreates the environment of East Germany in the 50s, where refrigerators don't work, radios have one channel, uh, (laughs) and people are happy there. The people who grew up in that period are happy there. That's, That's taking into consideration what people like. It's not, Mm -hmm. this is what we think speech in the modern world, this is what we see you like. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and because we always think bigger and better and fancier, and uh, you hear people, well, even myself, I'm 60 now, it's like, I, I could go without the upgrades, this is functioning just fine for me, I don't need to learn a whole nother process again, and so, you know, dialing it down sometimes is really very, very helpful and comforting in a lot of ways, because people feel more in control, and and uh, is what they're used to. Um, you've referred to persons. I like, I like the rock music from the 50s. I get very mm-hmm. happy when I hear that. <laughs> yeah, and, and each genre is a little little bit different over the years there. One thing I want to ask you about is person-centered care, because I, uh, one, I want you to define that for our audience, and then two, um, because I, I, I personally, I don't like that term because I, I, I personally think it's overused and underdelivered. But I'd like you to explain what it is to our audience and what your thoughts are on the term itself. Well, there, there are two versions of the term. I think person-centered care is what we were just now talking about, mm-hmm. understanding the individual and what their likes, dislikes, lifestyle is, where they've been, and working with a person that's still there, even though they don't have all the faculties they had before. It's still a human being with likes, dislikes. That is one aspect of person-centered care. And many institutions don't respect that. Everybody's supposed to get up at the same time, eat at the same time, bed at the same time, do their exercise in the same way. And that's just not who we are, unless we happen to be in the U.S. Army. Right? It's not how mm-hmm. we are. We're all very different. That's the first. That's one definition. But there's another definition to me of person-centered care because when I look at um, what we need to do as a society, I see we have to pay attention just like we are talking about to the very individual things. But we have to build systems that are person-centered as well. And what I mean by that is. For older people, hospitals aren't the best place to be. First of all, they're dangerous. Second of all, they're mm-hmm. inconvenient. They're very expensive, either for the individual or for society, whoever happens to pay. 
The best place for somebody to be is in their home. Next place is in the community. Then outpatient care and if necessary, hospital. But that has to be all integrated. So integrated care that allows you to deliver the detail of care you would in a hospital room at home or community is the ideal. Add to that social care where all of the social services are integrated into medical care as well. So medical care just becomes essentially another social service. And it may not be the doctor who's in charge. It may be the social worker who really knows that person who may be in charge, or it may be mixed responsibilities depending on the particular situation. To me, that is a system of person-centered care. And that, mm-hmm. I think, is a very positive definition, one that's workable because it tells you there's policy that you have to adopt. You can't have social care entirely different from medical care, and you can't have mental care, whether for a young or an old person, divorce from home care and social care. You know, there's a group out of Montefiore or a hospital in New York that has specialized in integrating mental care into home care, whether it's for an older adult or whether it's for an adult with uh, a younger adult with uh, mental issues. That kind of integration to me is the best kind of person-centered care. And Mm -hmm. add to that the individual care for who that person is, and you have a really good recipe for how societies as a whole can begin to deal with these uh, enormous issues. Okay. Well, that I, I like the breakdown of the, the two different types there. I, I really, when I go out and speak, I, 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 I've been telling people to kind of kick person-centered care to the curb because, again, I, for the most part, I think it's, it's uh, overused and underdelivered and, and start using the term relationship-based care because I think that gets to the core of really But that's knowing. one kind of it, but that isn't getting mm-hmm. at the other big issue, which mm-hmm. is how a society can, how a whole society and, you know, I can tell you through my work at uh, Access Health, mm-hmm. we focus on what government policies can be. Because if the government policy isn't there, it's not going to happen on a major scale. This is a huge, yep. you know, we're talking about millions and millions of people. You can yep. have many individuals doing what you just said. Mm-hmm. But if they're not embedded in a system that makes it possible, you get frustration after frustration want to read about frustration, read our book about the Swedish healthcare system, which is great if you're young and sick, but not good if you're old and ill, mm-hmm. because their social care and their medical care just aren't integrated. And it's deeply, deeply frustrating. You could hear it in the voices uh, of the people we talk to, the frustration mm-hmm. day after day of trying to get those two things to work together. One is municipal, one's county, two different administrations, two different bureaucracies, no way to integrate the payment structures. Those things, if you're going to change uh, dementia care on a broad scale, you've got to involve government policy. And that's why I think person-centered care or whatever you decide to call it, integrated mm-hmm. care, mm-hmm. is vital to achieving the goals that you and I care about. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it really is getting everybody on board. So it's like you said, so it it goes across the board and um and can be delivered because all these little pockets are are nice and they're helpful, but we have so many different levels of care and so many different kinds of care. You're you're right. It we do need to to integrate um we do need to integrate that uh, big time. So I'm I'm totally totally with you there. Um, when you and I'm part of it is, is saying what is the whole person? What is mm-hmm. it? Social environment? What is mm-hmm. it? Dietary habits? Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of families do they live in? What kind of personal support they have? All that is part of taking care of people. And you can do it on an individual level, but it's going to be ever so much powerful, more powerful. You know, Finland is just the process of integrating all social and medical records so that you really know the patient, whether you're the social or the person, whether you're the social worker or the doctor or the nurse practitioner, you know that person and you know most of the things. Now, there's a big term out there called social determinants of health, Mm -hmm. as if social determinants of health are different from medical determinants of health. They are all integrated. You can't separate a human being from their environment. And so to me, person-centered care means taking in all of the environment and developing systems of payment, systems of integration, information systems that capture all that and make it possible to do the people that you and I know want to do the work to do their work more easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense, and I think uh, I think exactly what you're talking about is is what we're lacking right now is that information, the the delivery and the payment systems to to meld together so they work work easily, so we really can care the, in the best. And as fashion. much as we may not like it, that's government. That's mm-hmm. what government policy does. In yep. particular, it's what Medicaid Medicare does mm-hmm. because they're the ones who pay most of the costs for healthcare. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Now, when you did your interviews for this book, was there anything that really surprised you when you were talking with people? Uh, I was surprised by the degree of frustration um, that they, most people created islands of excellence in a sea of mediocrity. Mm-hmm. And they were frustrated. That was surprising. They dedicated their whole lives to creating a system that worked. And many of these systems were quite different, but they all were working in one way or another. There are all commonalities to them, but all of them express the same problem. Yeah, these people we can take care of, but what about all the others? Yep. Yeah, I I have found... um... And I don't know if you've found this, but when I travel, and I, I don't go around the world just in the U.S. here, but the level of people talking about toxic environment in our in our healthcare system is it has just kind of blown me away, and the exhaustion um, of well, people I'll tell, you, I'll tell you another surprise I had. Yes, did you ask about surprises? I uh, my previous book to this is called World Class, and it's a deep study of an academic medical center here in New York. I looked around the world before I settled on this one. And what I learned there was they asked themselves a question. I mean, first of all, they set the parameters. We can't influence government. 
you know, whether it's Obamacare or whether it's Trump care or whatever it has to be, we're not going to change that from our, our, no matter how big we are, we have a voice, mm-hmm. but it's just one voice out of a thousand. Uh, we can't change New York state and we certainly can't even change New York city, but we can be the best we can be. We will do everything to achieve world-class status in patient care, in medical education, and in biomedical research. And they went from mediocre to the best in the world. They're right up there with the very best by any measure. They've been number one in quality and safety. They're number three medical school. They have the highest per capita research dollars per scientist of any institution in the United States from a very bad position 15 years ago. In 10 years, they turned the place around by saying, what can we do? Not what you government are going to do. What can we do? So there's two parts of the equation. Yeah, you have to work with government. You have to get policies right. But you also have to hold people accountable for the quality, the cost, the safety, and the patient satisfaction of what they deliver. And that you have to hold yourself accountable and other people have to hold you accountable, the payers. And that is a really big issue in elder care and in dementia care. You and I know that there are almost no ways of holding people accountable for substandard care. They don't get their institution closed. They don't get their money cut off. They don't get sent to remedial school. Nothing happens. The next person that comes in gets the same mediocre care as the last person that left. And that is not the way it should be. So that is a, was a big surprise to see how institutions that decide to be better can do it. And we just hope there are more and more people who do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really, you know, to me, what you're saying is, it really turns into that whole shift in culture of believing that you can be better and, and empowering employees to try. I I think that's one of the downfalls I see in, in some companies is they have taken out the creativity and the ownership and everything has gotten so task oriented and so driven by, you know, not wanting a red flag that, you know, they're, they're making, these huge, there's these huge gaps in how they care in terms of really being, knowing the person, you know, they're doing the tasks and they're checking those off, but there's, there's no twinkle in the eye for the person with dementia, for the family. And they don't ask, they don't ask ask the family, is this person really being taken care of? They don't even ask the person. So I think that those are, those are really important things. I'll tell you something else that surprised me. The very same people, very same people who are doing a mediocre job, when allowed to do a better job and encouraged to do a better job and given the resources to do a better job, perform magnificently. They didn't change the people. They changed the culture. They changed the desire. Basically, let's 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 have a culture of excellence, not a question of let's get along. And by changing the culture, that's a matter of leadership, matter of the board's leadership. It's a matter of the people who are there. But the people, especially people who play, spend their lives in healthcare, 
want to do good. You're dealing with the best kind of people. You know, I've been in an academic medical center. I've been in businesses, big and small. And I can tell you there's a big difference. If you're in an academic medical center or a, a hospital, everybody there wants to do a good job. In a business, most of the people are doing something quite honorable, feeding their family. But they really don't care if they do A, B, or C. But when you deal in the health sector, almost everybody is on board. They want to do a good job. So you're dealing with the best motivation in the world. You just have to unleash it. Yeah, you have to give them permission to care. And and some of the policies right. have turned around where, you, you know, you can't give somebody a hug. You can't touch them. You can't, you know, so many right. because of a few bad apples. And we've forgotten about the moments of joy or how to communicate or even, you know, with families. Um, I think I had mentioned in the opening, I'm, I'm doing one on why, why families act the way they do. Well, because we only call when there's a problem. You know, we're not saying that we get their person, that we enjoy their presence, that, you know, they're engaged. We're saying we screwed up on a med, they fell down, there's a bruise, uh, you know, something's missing. And and those those aren't trust builders. And so I think we have to be, um, we have to realize what everybody is looking for and be respectful of that. And, And those can be task too when you make a call or send a picture of of those moments of joy but but we also you know I've talked with a lot of companies and they're like oh you know we'll do this every Thursday at 10 o'clock I'm like no now you've made it into a task now it's not authentic now and there's a difference in well you know you can surely see that many years you've spent thinking about these issues I mean there isn't a single topic we we've touched on that uh you don't have personal experience with it. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and I I just I, I'm I so believe that any person can make a make a huge huge difference. I mean, I I've been shocked because I was told with everything I've done that it wasn't possible, it couldn't happen, and you know I, I just it's like I, I for me I would feel bad not trying. I, I would be ashamed of myself not trying. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of people have that in them, but their fear of failure is so much greater. And, you know, uh, that's another word I've kind of kicked to the curb. I, I've kicked perfection to the curb. I've kicked failure to the curb. And to me, progress is better than perfection. You know, it's just moving forward and failure is the opportunity to learn, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's a gift. It's a gift to make it better. Um, but we don't look at it like that. We we look at it and we shame it and we guilt it and you know we we throw it in the corner. Right, and we but talk you know, about one thing we didn't talk about is what that is the burden that that places mm-hmm. on a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're trying to do as a, as an individual, it is a killing task. Uh, you know, when you measure the stress levels of people who are caring for an Alzheimer's spouse, it's about the same as a soldier in battle not the soldier resting between fights, but actually in battle. And mm-hmm. that's for day in, day out, day in, day out. Even soldiers don't fight every day. But somebody caring for somebody with advanced Alzheimer's is. And we need to give everybody support. It's not something that any single person should have to bear themselves. It's too great a, a, too great a burden. I think that's another thing we need to talk about as a society. How do we help? primary caregivers if they're a relative uh, with their job. You know, there's so many ways we help 
children. We send them to school. We have teachers. We have whole institutions for this. Well, guess what? We have more older people than we have than we have children. Should we have institutions like schools that help you as a parent, as a spouse, deal with these issues? You don't ask societies. I didn't say educate your kid yourself. Teach your kid how to play football or tennis yourself. Teach them how to play the piano yourself. But when it comes to an old person, you say, yeah, do everything yourself for this person. It's not reasonable. Yeah. No, and the burden it puts on somebody is like unbearable. Yeah, that's a, that's a really born, nice but way to look at that. Born with a task, stress, yeah. And yeah. we don't think of things that way. Yeah, and it, it's very yeah. important. It's, um, you know, because you want to do the right thing. And you also feel the, the societal pressures of you're supposed to do it on your own. Um, and, and then I also found, for me anyways, and I've, I've heard a lot of people say the same thing after I've, I've mentioned this, but it was really interesting. One of the things I found was there were kind of two different kinds of people in the world. And one would ask, how's your mom doing? Cause they really wanted to know. And the other set asked because they wanted to give me permission to never go back and see her because they were so uncomfortable not knowing mm. what to do or how to help that they right. just wanted it to stop. And gosh, when I realized that it was like, Oh my gosh, this is really a huge problem that there's this, much discomfort in hearing right. about this. There's a lot of there's a lot. I'm gonna to have to uh, just change my headphones for a minute. I'm gonna sure. go to a speaker because my uh, AirPods have just died. Okay, so okay. hold on a sec. Okay. Well, what a great conversation we're having here. I, I am just so thrilled and so honored that we are able to talk with Dr. William uh, Hazeltine regarding his new book, Voices in Dementia Care, Reimagining the Culture of Care. And um, he's just switching out his, his uh, earphones. And as soon as uh, he's ready, we will I be back. I'm back. I'm back. You hear me? Okay. Yep. Here you hear you just fine. Thank you so much. Um, well, this is just such a fun conversation. We've got about, um, oh, let's say 12 minutes left. Um, what, what do you want people, what other things haven't we talked about that you just really feel are dire that, that people need to understand about our healthcare system and our, our care cultures and, um, you know, dementia as a whole. A little more optimistic that we've been talking, we've been talking about a lot of needs, but you know, technology is going to be a big help. Um, you can now essentially take care of people at home as well as if they were in a hospital. You can do all the monitoring, all the checking, most of the medication delivery, uh, almost everything you could do in a, in a hospital room, you can now do at home. And mm-hmm. you can monitor exactly what's going on on a minute-to-minute, day-to-day basis. And you'll have, and increasingly we have, uh, artificial intelligence services that serve to help you. You might not notice that somebody's not talking or that their speech pattern has been slightly altered. But AI may, and you may get a prompt. won't tell you what to do, but it'll say, have you considered that this patient may have a uh, physical, not a medical problem, they're not moving around as much as they used to, or uh, their speech pattern suggests that they're in pain. 
and they may not want to tell you that. Those are the kinds of things that we can look forward to that can help everybody do a better job. Um, and I think that that's a, a positive story. I don't, I don't think, and I'm pretty, I actually would, I'm pretty sure, we're not going to replace personal care. No robot that's going to replace personal care. This isn't going to happen. But technology will make the job of the caretaker easier. Just take something like scheduling. Uh, having an app, a scheduling app, is going to make somebody's life a lot easier. All the contacts are there. All the numbers are there. All the things that are supposed to happen when, all the addresses are there. If you have a single app like that, it's going to make somebody's life easier. Um, you can understand what's happening with your loved one when you're not always there. You know, in the, this world of ours, we travel around a lot, even if we have primary responsibility for someone else's care. So technology makes it possible to be a lot closer. So there are many things. I think those are, those are all positive. We don't rely on technology to do the job, but we allow technology to help us do the job. Yeah, I like that. I, I get people reaching out to me all the time in terms of new things that are coming out. And, you know, it's so important, especially when it comes to dementia, in terms of having a pilot base to really get their feedback, uh, those actually diagnosed and those uh, those caring for them and thinking about the progression as well, because there's a lot of things that can that can help them be more independent as well as just us monitoring and That's also true. And, and and supervising them. And we we have so many people who live alone who don't have somebody to help them either. And so right. those technologies can can come into play. And what do you think about, you know, I know in other countries they have um, oh, I can't even think of the, the word now, but, you know, social workers and nurses come out to the house versus going into the clinic and they, they're just kind of set up by neighborhoods. And, um, you know, it, it, I think it takes some great ideas. They're great. The more you can get people into people where they live and is, you know, as long as people can get out and about, that's fine. But when they can't much better to have people come to their home and have them be uh, a shepherd to some other place. Much better. People are much yeah. happier in their own environments. Yeah. Well, and I think you can get the, the true scoop on things that maybe you're missing that isn't being told when you see the environment and, and things as well. That's right. Um, you know, there are places the, that where handymen are part of the team. They go in and fix mm -hmm. up the house. You know, part of the, the problem that a lot of people have is they're dealing with substandard living conditions that sometimes they, they, the fixes are pretty simple. Fix the refrigerator door. Yep. Uh, you know, make sure that uh, temperature gauge is working and not broken. Mm -hmm. That window ought to be able to open. It's simple things like that. Well, in the stress that those things cause, too, I, when I was in residential real estate for 25 years, I saw that all the time. And people would shut out, uh, shut down like half of their house, sometimes even more, because they weren't using it. They didn't want to heat it. They didn't, you know, or they didn't feel safe, you know, doing those steps or the lighting or whatever it might be. Or right. they, the step they was loose. Yeah. Things were deteriorating, but they didn't know how to, who to, who to approach or how right. they were going to fund it. There are places we've come across where handymen are part of the team. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I love I love that idea. I love I I just think it's that holistic approach, you know, in terms That's of tapping into your real estate background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting, but it, it's just one of those things where I think we we have to look bigger and broader, and we have to get people past the the stigmas and the fears, and and you know we've yeah, adapted. That's right. And so those are those are either called person-centered care or social determinants of health or a lot of different names, but I think we're talking about the same kind of thing. Yep. Exactly. And, um, you know, to get, get people to realize that dementia is just another thing in life we have to adjust to. We've adjusted to cancer. We've adjusted to heart disease. We've adjusted to aging. Um, you know, all of those things. Life is all, all about adjustment. And, um, it, you know, it's never going to change. It's always going to be there. It's just how, how graciously are we going to approach this? Um, how, how are we going to work as a team? you know, to, to provide the best care and the best lifestyle for, for everybody. Um, and, you know, how do we lend a hand up and how do we ask for help? Uh, I, I think there's such embarrassment here in the U.S. with asking for help. Who do you go to and how do you ask and, and not feeling ashamed well, that you need it? You don't feel you're going to get it when you ask. Mm-hmm. I think in countries where people think they're going to get care when they ask, they're less reticent to ask. Yep. Well, that makes we sense too. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, a lot of sense. Um, how do you see like insurance companies and and managed healthcare systems? Is this something that they're really pushing for as well? Do you, do you feel that the the well, need you at know, that- the answer is yes. And those that already have good businesses are reluctant to change. That's normal. But there is a whole sector that is financial sector that's quite interested in this. Long-term care insurance. Under, we're underserved long-term care insurance. And there are many, many opportunities. And I think thoughtful business people are looking at this. Uh, certainly in countries like China or India, that don't have the Medicare Medicaid systems that we might. They're very interested in that. And even here, we're looking. There's a lot of people are looking at long-term care insurance. I would say that is one of the big things you look at. Another whole thing is we we focus on is fintech for health. Um, mm-hmm. We focus on issues like how do you pay for cancer care? How do you pay for care of a rare disease? But there's a big issue of how do you pay for dementia care? And, you know, a whole big chunk of our insurance, we're unprotected. You may have a very, very good insurance policy, yet if your loved one or you have a serious mental condition and you end up either in a mental institution or in a essentially a living condition where because you're so fragile, you need months of reintegration. Nobody pays for that. And they don't even pay for psychiatric care. We have a huge gap in our insurance policies. And Medicare won't pay for that. Medicaid doesn't pay for that. And insurance companies don't pay for that. Well, what are people to do? It's just an enormous un- un- unfulfilled need. 
Wow. Well, and you cover some of that in, I believe, in your book, Aging Well, too. Um, we do. To the solutions to the most pressing global challenges of, of aging. And you you talk in there about $4.4 billion Medicare dollars were wasted annually in unnecessary emergency care and how do we prevent avoidable hospitalizations and and right. there's so many so many different well, things. Well, that's one but that's- issue, but the other issue is just getting people to pay for psychiatric care, mm-hmm. getting people to pay, you know, other than you yourself, and who can afford it? You know, some of these places are forty thousand dollars a month. Who can afford yeah. that? Yep, the exactly. That's the answer. Yeah, and yeah. It is like 1% and the 99% can't. Mm-hmm. Yet it's needed for a lot of people. Exactly. And where we're seeing that more and more, I mean, every day, you know, on the news, where, you know, this, the whole mental health of, of society is, I mean, it's just changed so significantly and um, elevated in terms of kind of the the dysfunction and, and um, the, the frustration they're going through and the unmet needs are, are bubbling to the top and we, we can't ignore them anymore. Um, right. You know, my well, hope, and, and, you know, we have a minute or two. What is my hope? My hope is people listen to you, your audience, will translate what we're talking about into pressure on their city councilor, their mayor, their congressman, their senator. Do something about this and find a common voice. We are the biggest voting bloc, and we're getting bigger. We older people are the voting bloc, and we should exercise our political power to make sure we get what we need for ourselves and our loved ones. And I would urge your listeners to move from understanding to action and it's action through the political sphere that will get results we can see by looking at the impeachment hearings or whatever else you want to look at people are sensitive to what most people in their voting area want you may agree with it you may not but the politicians are sensitive they are listening and even if it goes against the grain of what they believe, they'll do it if they want mm-hmm. to get reelected. Or they'll do it to get reelected because they want to be reelected. And yep. we have to collectively exert our power. If we don't, we won't get what we need. If we do, and we do it thoughtfully, we may have a much better world for everyone. And so, again, I would urge your listeners to figure out what they need from their politicians and put pressure on them until they get it. Yeah, we and we can't expect them to know if we don't tell them. You know, they Absolutely. they need to know they need to know the numbers. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, people can go to your website, which is uh, williamhazeltine.com or access um, health uh, uh, org. It's access with an H, www.accessh.org. Okay, wonderful. And we've also um, listed your email address and, and LinkedIn 
uh, and Twitter account too, uh, if people want to reach out to you. But again, I thank you so much for your work and taking this time well, uh, to share with your, us. Well, you're great. And, I think and taking again, your personal experience and making it general and helpful to many, it is a wonderful thing to have done. Oh, thank you. Again, go out there and purchase this book, Voices in Dementia Care, Reimagining uh, the, care cult- or the Culture of Care. Thank you all, and have a, have a wonderful week. Bye now. Thank you very much. Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525.